the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. Have others told you that you're worthless, ruined, ignorant, or deserving of the abuse that you've received in life? Well, these negative identities don't reflect the way God views you. Satan's goal is to sear damaging deceptions into our minds and our souls with accusations, guilt, and suffering. But our identity is not based on what's happened to us. It's not the roles we fulfill or the things we do or even what others think of us. Our identity is who we are in Christ. When we came to Christ and placed our lives in his hands, we receive a new identity. Jesus' death affords us a brand new position in life and death. Not only are our sins wonderfully forgiven because of the blood of Christ, but we are the recipients of an incredible exchange he made just for us, taking away our old shameful and sinful nature and giving us a new one. We continue our series, The Freedom Challenge, 60 Days to Untie the Cords That Bind You. And with us is pastor and best-selling author, Don Scott Damon. Don, great to have you back on the program as we uh, continue our Bible study here. And we move next into a chapter that I think um, is a challenge for a lot of people. And I guess perhaps a, by way of a bit of explanation, it, inherently for those who have suffered abuse— it's demonstrative of a situation where in the time, in, in the moment, you're out of control, the situation is out of control, somebody else is in control. And so I would imagine that emotionally, psychologically, it's quite logical on the backside of that kind of experience and, and, and the sense of horrible feeling that is brought up in being out of control and an abuser is in control, at least for the moment, that we suddenly move into this place now where we fear a loss of control. And perhaps because of the connection between the loss of control and that horrific experience or experiences, we attempt moving forward to control circumstances circumstances for ourselves, perhaps also circumstances of others, and in many cases that brings about a horrific degree of frustration because the reality is there's an awful lot about life we can't control. <laughs> wow, you nailed it. Um, that's exactly that's exactly it. What a great description. You know, we could probably vacillate both ways. We could become a person who looks and seeks to continue to be controlled, mm. meaning I've lost any ability to make decisions for myself and I need someone to overpower me. Or conversely, we may be that person that looks to control. Because why? Because control equals safety. Um, like you said, I lost control somewhere in my life, and I don't want to experience that horrible emotion ever again of feeling helpless. So I am going to control because some some way, somehow, my which is an illusion, my being in control makes me feel safe, makes me feel powerful, makes me feel superior, 
And uh, maybe even it makes me feel independent, like no one will ever hurt me again. No one will ever get close enough to me again. And uh, once again, controlling is one of those cords that gets wrapped around us, and we might think that we're really powerful and free. The truth is, it it leaves us in bondage. And fascinating, and I think important, uh, a study on this topic, because so often this sort of abuse, be it emotional or physical, whatever it might be, is often a sign of a perpetrator. Uh, who at some point or another in their life felt as if they were out of control. And so to be able to engage in this kind of behavior, at least momentarily, puts them back into a sense of power and control. And so they're attempting to exercise control over somebody else, and of course, in the process of doing so, completely for that individual, for that victim, for that recipient, suddenly now completely distorts what control looks like and means, oftentimes for a good portion of a person's life. Yeah, and I think that's what was modeled for them, right? Yes. This is what I know. I was controlled, and so then, therefore, that's how I'm going to cope with life. It is a coping skill. It's a coping mechanism. When I control things, it really is a mask for fear, isn't it? I'm so afraid to live life. I'm afraid of abandonment, perhaps. I'm afraid of more pain. And so control gives me um, some certainty, that some stability, and again, we say this is an illusion because it does not work, but, um, and I even have some significance now. Maybe I've become a little bit of a bully, and I've got people under my thumb, and you know, by the way, Craig, you know, nobody likes to say, hey, I'm a controller, I'm a control freak, so we'd rather use words like, I'm helping someone, or I'm guiding them, or, you know, I'm lending my experience to someone else, but really maybe they would, that person would say, no, you're meddling or you're manipulating or we have to manage your emotions all the time because if you don't get your way or if you're not in control, you know, you pout or you stonewall or you you ignore us or you um, get revengeful. So this this control is deep-seated and maybe sneaky, but think about it. You know, do you give more advice than people ask for? Are you making plans all the time? Are you someone who just can't seem to relax and let go and just allow things to organically flow? Or are you always having to plan in advance and fix everything and make sure that you're all organized and put together? Because that's a form of control. I don't want to look stupid. And it's exhausting. It it leaves you just feeling uh, absolutely drained and unfruitful, and it's frustrating because you really can't control it. What can we control, really? We have no control. We, actually, in the Freedom Challenge, we talk about the one thing that you do get to control, and I imagine we'll talk about that in a minute. And and, and, and I, before we leave this, this aspect of the topic, I, I think it's very important for people, too, to understand that, that it's a natural reaction. I mean, I, for example, Don, I, I come from a broken home. I, like many Americans, you know, the 50 percentile of marriages that end in divorce. And I was only five years old when that happened. And so there was a lot of turmoil, you know, custody battles and all of this back and forth. And, you know, suddenly you find out that your, your, your future, your destiny is in the hands of a guy wearing a black robe that you don't even know what his name is. And so there's a tremendous sense of being out of control at that point. And I think as a result, through a lot of my life since then, 
I like to avoid circumstances when I don't have a sense of control, when there's not that that sense of of predictability about all of it, because it represents for me a a time of tremendous destabilization in my own life. So it's it's a natural reaction, I think, but of course it's completely flawed because at the end of the day, realistically, we know there's not a lot in life that we really have control over. The one thing, of course, that we can control, and that is we can control our ability to surrender to God's control if we're only willing to do so. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and you know what a what an experience you had as a little guy, and what did that teach you? Like you said, you know, I am uncomfortable in situations where it's unknown. I don't know what's going to happen next, and it's there's a great amount of anxiety and fear associated with that. That happened for me too in my childhood. Of course, being abused by my father, and then just feeling like I I always just felt like something bad was about to happen, and I had to continually be alert and aware, never really feeling present or relaxing anywhere, because I was constantly checking out what was going on in the space. And so I thought, I have to stay in control. I have to be strong. I I cannot have any feelings. I cannot have any emotions, because if I do, that's a form of losing control, and then I'm vulnerable, and something bad will happen to me. And the older I got, the more I realized exactly what you said, that I was not trusting in a God that could protect me or save me, because I didn't think that he did. And then it comes to that question, where was God when I was being hurt? So how am I supposed to relinquish control and trust in a God who seemed to let me down? And that was my poor understanding and my childlike interpretation of God. And, you know, it's true. I I was seeing God as I was seeing my father, somebody that was there who was going to hurt me and crush me if I didn't do everything exactly right. So this control thing was an issue for me as well. It's today, again, part of our ongoing Bible study series, The Freedom Challenge, 60 Days to Untie the Cords That Bind You. That, by the way, is the name of a new book written by our guest and Bible study teacher Don Scott Damon, the book newly published by Redemption Press, available online through the usual suspects, Amazon.com. You can also order it at redemption-press.com. That's redemption-press.com. We'll continue with the Freedom Challenge, 60 days to untie the cords that bind you right after this. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. Welcome back to our conversation. It's our ongoing Bible study series, The Freedom Challenge, 60 days to untie the cords that bind you. With us is pastor and author... Don Scott Damon. Don, ironically, as we were talking about the issue of control just before the break, it, it, it brings about an interesting dichotomy here in that one of the solutions to this sense of, of lack of stability and the fear that's often brought up in circumstances and situations that we cannot control, and that is to ultimately recognize, first, we can't control it, and B, to surrender our inability to control by surrendering our control of our own life to God and let Him be in control. Now, oftentimes for a person that has control issues, though, that's a lot easier said than done, isn't it? It is. It is. And I think if we begin to know who God is, then that becomes better 
and better, easier and easier, if you will, for us. Because how can I relinquish control and how can I trust someone I don't know? Most of us, many of us, we don't know the full nature and character of God. And we have an idea of who He is, but really, we've made God in our own image. We look at Him sometimes like we look at a perpetrator or an abuser or a father that wasn't available to us. And we all know some the visions that we have of God being that old guy up in heaven that's sitting there ready to pounce on us if we do something wrong. But in the Freedom Challenge, we spend a week looking at who God really is. We find out that, he, you know what, Craig, He's faithful, He's worthy of our trust. He's not untrustworthy. He is worthy of that trust. No matter what circumstances we've been in, God has never failed. He's never let us down. He's never made a mistake. He is altogether trustworthy. And He does want us to relinquish control of our lives to Him. His love is working in us and through us. And and if we will, I love Proverbs 3, 5, and 6, if we'll trust in the Lord with all our heart and not lean on our own understanding, God is going to guide us and lead us and direct us. We're going to walk into amazing freedom that we never knew existed. But we got to start by getting to know who God is. And that irony, of course, is that control and trust are two words that are so uh, intertwined with each other. And I'm I'm reminded, as you were sharing, I, I thought of that wonderful hymn of faith, I Surrender All. And you know, we think of that in the context of surrendering our fears, our sins, our worry, our doubt. But for a lot of people, the notion of surrendering all to God as it relates to even control, that's a big hurdle to get over. <laughs> it is, and I'm not laughing because it's funny. I'm laughing because it's like, oh, yes, this is what we do. I, I will give you this piece, God. I'll give you that piece, but I, I can't give you my pain. I can't give you my trauma. I can't give you my burdens. Well, I'll give you this one, but I can't give you that one. I, I can't. I, certainly, you want me to help you help fix these problems, Lord. Certainly, you want me to have some of the reins of control. And God says, yes, here's what you get to control. You get to have self-control. That's what we get to control. We're self-leadership, self-governing. As the Bible says, this is one of the fruits of the Spirit. But even in having that fruit of the Spirit cultivated in us, it comes from surrendering everything to God and allowing the Holy Spirit to be at work inside of us. So it's letting go, letting go, letting go. And how scary is that for a control freak? <laughs> yeah, that's, that's, that's a big challenge, no doubt. And, and, of course, the other thing, too, is, and, and again, back to the notion of how inextricably the issue of control and trust are intertwined, in the process of letting go, it's also suggesting that we're beginning to increase our capacity to surrender, to, to trust. And oftentimes a lot of that is so surrounded by issues of, of, of fear and doubt because, let's face it, we've been bruised, we've been wounded, we've, we've been taught from the times of those experiences not to trust, not to surrender control, and now we're essentially saying in order for God to really take over our lives and make them better, we have to not only surrender control, but we have to learn to trust. Yes. And again, he is worthy of that trust. You know, I, the Bible never tells us to trust people. They're going to let us down. They're going to hurt us. We're not commanded to do that. We're not commanded to trust in, as the Bible says, 
chariots and armor. These are material things, or even government things. We're not supposed to trust in that, but to put our trust in a God who is perfect, who's never failed, even though we don't see it and don't understand it. Even our pain, God will take and use it for our good. He will redeem it. He will turn it and shape it to cause something amazing for our life, not in spite of what we've been through, but because of what we've been through, we will be a stronger person, wiser, and a, a, a tool a, a, in God's hands for helping other people, redeeming other people. But it is. It's, it, I love the serenity prayer. Um, I've written this in the book. I've made a copy of this, but it says, living one day at a time, enjoying one moment at a time, accepting hardship as a pathway to peace, taking as Jesus did the sinful world as it is, not as I would have it, but trusting that God will make all things right. And how beautiful is that? Surrendering to trusting God will make everything right. And that's a leap of faith. That's a leap of faith. And and perhaps, too, we need to be mindful that as we are learning to trust, we are surrendering control, Albeit in increments, this, this I think people need to understand, is not an, a one-time event. Sometimes the pain that initiated all of this distortion of control in our life might have been a one-time event. The effects, though, go on and on, although in other circumstances, this might have been multiple events. And so the matter of that, that learning to con- surrender control to him and trust him is a process. And then, too, I think the, the notion of, of being able, as we surrender control, we also need to learn how to surrender or release the pain that's associated with those experiences and believe that God is capable of taking that on and removing that burden from us, no? Mm-hmm. Yes. And that is a hard part because sometimes we become very close friends with our pain and we know how to cope with life. We, we've had these coping skills that have gotten us through, and it's become my identity, which is why we start with understanding who we are in Christ. We shouldn't be defined by our pain and our past trauma, but oftentimes we are. So now if I get stripped of that, if I let that go, do I know how to live in freedom? Do I know how to live in happiness? Do I know how to live when I'm not moody and emotional or stoic? So releasing my pain to God means that that I'm letting go of an identity, I'm letting go of a victim mindset, and I'm willing to allow him to create in me the new woman, the new man that he's called me to be, and uh, cultivate that, as we said, that fruit of the Spirit in me, love and joy, peace, kindness. So taking the control that we're using as a crutch to lean on that says I'll never get hurt again because somehow I have this illusion, this lie that I tell myself that I'm in control. I remember so many times in my life that when I've been hurt or I've gone through something that made me feel afraid, my my reaction to that, my response was to gather up all the control again and to get fortified and to armor up, lawyer up, if you will, in, in the emotional realm. Get ready. And that's the very opposite what God says come to me lay it down let it go trust me lean into me and and allow me to move and when we see how God does that for us our faith in him grows we our relationship with him grows we begin to understand his character 
And now we get to the place where we can say, you know what? I don't have to deal with this. I'm going to let God handle this for me. I'm free from this. I'm not going to respond. And at the end of the day, as we learn to give up control and to surrender to him in in stages, uh, we get something back tremendous. What we get back is, a, is an increasing sense of self-value, self-worth, self-confidence, the ability to begin to forgive oneself. Um, and we'll talk about that in a later edition of our ongoing Bible study series. It is the Freedom Challenge, 60 Days to Untie the Cords That Bind You. Now, if you'd like to get a copy of the book to follow along, um, it is newly released by Redemption Press, and you can order it through the usual suspects, Amazon.com. You can also order it directly through the publisher. Simply go to redemption Press. Dot com. That's redemption-press.com. And I'd like to thank our um, Bible study teacher, author, and pastor, Don Scott Damon, for being with us on this edition of The Freedom Challenge, 60 Days to Untie the Cords That Bind You. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. As we introduce our guest tonight, I am reminded of many of the weddings, certainly down through the years that I have attended, where generally after a few glowing words that are spoken by a minister in attendance, uh, there's an exchange of vows, and, and much of this seems to focus on largely the notion that they're going to live happily ever after they are completed in each other, uh, that there is uh, just a wonderful thing that happens when two people come and, and pledge their love in marriage. And then, of course, reality sets in. And I, and I say that somewhat with tongue planted in cheek, but yet I think a lot of us have some pretty big distortions about what marriage is, what the roles are between the spouses, and uh, what the expectations ought to be. And boy, especially in this arena of expectations, uh, oftentimes people are in for a very rude, rude awakening. And of course, uh, the evidence of that is the divorce rate in America today. Well, Dr. Chris Thurman has taken the time to dig down into many of these myths concerning marriage and outright says, look, uh, you need to rethink your approach. You need to go into this by being transformed by the truth if you're going to have a hope of a successful marriage relationship. Dr. Thurman, as we mentioned, is an author. He is also a Christian psychologist. He's conducted hundreds of personal growth seminars addressing uh, topics including marriage. And his new book is called The Lies Couples Believe, How Living the Truth Transforms Your Marriage. And Dr. Thurman, good to have you with us on the program. Craig, thank you so much for having me. Boy, this is an experience in life where amazingly a lot of married couples go into this thing with eyes wide closed, don't they? Well, unfortunately, we do. We walk down the aisle and uh, we think we might have a pretty good handle on what we're getting into, but uh, God certainly uses the marital relationship to um, challenge us and to get us to uh, see more clearly what marriage is all about and how he's trying to use it to help us to mature. This this image first out the gate, and it largely seems to be uh, kind of the thing of which uh, fairy tales are made of as opposed to most realistic 
and long-term marriages, and that is this notion that we're going to live happily ever after, that once we say I do and the ring exchange has taken place, that it's only the rare couple or the people that don't work hard enough that end up getting into trouble. But most don't most couples, when they go into this, really think that, that they've got all they need to be successful? I think they do, Craig. I think that's a common assumption that people make. Um, and I do think that we buy into kind of the Hollywood notion that um, it will be happily ever after. And uh, as you said earlier, the reality of marriage being difficult and people being fallen and hurtful at times uh, begins to set in and then we're not so happy and we begin to question if we're not careful having gotten married and we begin to think about other options and uh, think that happiness might be somewhere else out there for us. Hmm. Failed or incomplete expectations. That that seems to kind of be one of the most glaring, if we had to look for uh, maybe an overall overreaching, overarching phrase about where people run into so much trouble, doesn't it? That their expectations for what marriage is about, their expectations about how they're going to relate to their spouse, how their spouse will relate to them, is oftentimes one of the big danger areas, isn't it? I think it is. I think we do, uh, even if it's unconsciously, I think we go into marriage with these uh, fairly lofty expectations and that uh, oftentimes are not all that grounded in reality as to what a person can bring to us, what we can bring to them. And so expectations can be a real killer in a marriage and lead people to be bitter and resentful when those expectations are not lived up to. Let's reset a few. Early on in the book, and and when I read your new book, The Lies Couples Believe, I thought, boy, um, (laughs) wouldn't this upset a lot of brides who were busy uh, writing their marriage vows uh, to read the book and and specifically your chapter on uh, how the spouse will complete me or will meet all of my needs. I've been to many weddings where the vows that are exchanged and lovingly you even see this take place during the reception when they're toasting each other or cutting the cake, how that my husband so-and-so, my wife so-and-so, she completes me. And that flowerly language sounds lovey-dovey, but it falls short of a major reality, doesn't it, Doctor? It does. Um, You know, the reality of every human being is that we're finite, and uh, we can't possibly meet the total package of needs that another human being has. But again, we buy into the idea that if we have found the right person, they're going to be capable of completely meeting every need that we have. And uh, what I try to discuss in that chapter is God has a wide variety of healthy, appropriate ways to meet your total package of needs, and that we need to be careful not to drop all of our needs on our spouse's doorstep. And that's pretty uh, pretty unrealistic, too, isn't it? I mean, in terms of the enormous amount of pressure that it puts on an individual. I mean, think certainly from a Christian perspective, uh, we ought to be thinking about God as the one Uh, who is most completely and fully capable of meeting all of our needs, to put that kind of pressure on a spouse, to have that level of expectation, I mean, it it would seem to me you're you're setting yourself up for disappointment because, let's face it, we all make mistakes. We're all frail. We're all human. We are still all struggling with sin. Well, we are. And, uh, you know, 
I, I don't think God is bothered that we put that pressure on him because he's omni. He's all-knowing, all-powerful, and everywhere at once. So he's not intimidated by us turning to him for our needs to be met. And, and I think he, my own understanding is that he wants us to be incredibly careful about not putting that kind of pressure on a spouse or a best friend or anyone else down here on earth. We're talking about this matter of being transformed by truth in marriage relationships with Dr. Chris Thurman. The new book is called The Lies Couples Believe, and I I find it interesting because we get into early chapters in the book that talk about the misnomer of happily ever after or how that my spouse will complete me or meet all of my needs, and it's very evident that those two misconceptions alone sets the marriage off the rails pretty quickly that the balance of the chapters in the book deal with now the sudden attempt at compensation when things are not going idealistically. And, of course, we find out that there's an awful lot of lies that we believe in that attempt to try and compensate or reason our way through why things aren't going as idealistically as we thought they would or should. We'll talk about that further as our discussion continues. Dr. Chris Thurman, our guest, he is the author of The Lies Couples Believe, How Living the Truth Transforms Your Marriage. A brief time out, back with more as Lifeline continues. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. Welcome back to our conversation. Craig Roberts along with Dr. Chris Thurman. His new book, The Lies Couples Believe, How Living the Truth Transforms Your Marriage. Let's talk a bit about um, how this goes off the rails pretty quickly, Doctor. And you dive into this fairly early on in the book. One One of the... lies that is oft repeated, and I think it's our, sort of our attempt to try and, and, and mentally uh, justify the early cracks that we see in the fuselage, so to speak, in our marriage, and that is this notion that, well, yeah, there's some difficulties here, but my spouse is really the bigger problem. You know, Craig, I think that's very common for people to um, think that way. Uh, it is my spouse who's got more issues. They are the more troubled person. They have the bigger plank in their eye than I do in mine. And that kind of uh, mindset obviously is pretty hurtful to the person that you're married to. Uh, it's pretty, uh, for lack of a better word, it's pretty arrogant for us to think that uh, we are not equally as big of a mess as a human being. And, um, it's just sad that we would ever, you know, have that attitude and uh, not have a more humble attitude of, you know, I've got my issues. Uh, I am just as much a co-creator of our marital health or sickness, and I need to be uh, humble about that when I'm interacting with my spouse. You know, oftentimes that same distorted perception as to who the problem is also tends to be a means by which we sort of self-justify by saying, well, you know, at the end of the day, I'm making the effort. I'm doing all the hard work. Some spouses might say, well, I work all day long and I bring home the paycheck. Or the other spouse says, yeah, but I'm taking care of the kids and taking care of the house. And so as a result, I'm entitled to my spouse's love. Talk to us about that lie. 
Craig, the uh, the whole issue of entitlement uh, is especially toxic in marriage, um, and that's a tough uh, teaching to go into these days because I think, unfortunately, uh, we're almost raised to think that we are entitled. You know, we're entitled to the good life. We're entitled to be treated with respect. And when it comes to marriage, if we're not careful, we think we're entitled to our spouse being loving, entitled to them being kind, entitled to them uh, carrying their fair share of the load. So what I'm after in that chapter is I want us to consider shifting away from an entitlement mindset to I would like my spouse to uh, love me. I would like my spouse to help me carry the load. More of a humble attitude of I want that from them. I'm not entitled to it, but I desire it. There's also this notion that we oftentimes um, will try to justify some of our own faults or failures by saying, well, you know, I am the way I am because uh, no, you know, no fault of my own. This was the way I was raised. I realize that I have simple or a certain uh, uh, failures or faults. But at the end of the day, my spouse just has to accept me the way I am. And of course, that usually is coupled with and but all of the defects that he or she has. I'm going to work toward changing them. They have to change, not me. Yes, I uh, in that chapter I mentioned the uh, cartoon Popeye because one of his more iconic lines was, I am who I am. And um, what I'm going into there is a lot of people have that attitude, and it's really kind of a smokescreen for, I don't want you to push me to change. I don't want you to be on me about anything that I might need to polish off the rough edges of. So do we need acceptance from our spouse? Yes, of course we do. Are they supposed to accept us warts and all? Absolutely. But does that mean that we shouldn't be open to them saying, hey, I don't like this about you. Would you be willing to work on not being that way? I think a marriage that isn't an iron sharpening iron marriage is a no growth marriage. So I'm very concerned whenever my couples that come to see me kind of wrap themselves in the accept me as I am flag and basically don't want to do any changing while they're married. Mm. Now, toward that end, there's also this notion that um, we would get along better if they would just think like me. This runs into cases, for example, in a marriage where there's a spender and a saver who have married. And we're saying, well, if, if, my, if my spouse, who's this major spender, would just become a saver like me, if they just act or think or be like me, that would fix all the problems. You know, I have to admit uh, that's one of mine. Um, I'm not stereotyping military families, but I grew up in a military family, and uh, we were really told, you know, this is the way you clean things, this is the way you organize things, you need to wax it, shine it, windex it, salute it, and uh, this is the right way to do it. So when I married my wife, Holly, 35 years ago, I had a pretty uh, stubborn attitude about, you know, you need to be like me. I'm the one who knows how to do it right. And if you're not doing it the way I do it, then you're obviously wrong and you need to adjust. And uh, you can imagine how poorly that goes over with another human being who um, is more than free to be the person God made them to be and to have their own style and to not uh, apologize for that. 
Let's talk about some other issues here that really go to the core of dealing with bitterness and anger. And uh, it's interesting because this reminds me of the person as they're as they're suggesting that um, a spouse must, for example, the the other offending spouse must be the first one to forgive or has to earn forgiveness from the opposite spouse. That this oftentimes also becomes a place where we suddenly find ourselves not only trying to negotiate the, the topic of forgiveness with our spouse, but I would suspect it's like trying to negotiate the terms of forgiveness with God. I think so. And uh, that was one of the tougher chapters of the book to write because um, I think a lot of us do think that forgiveness has to be earned and that the other person has to repent of what they're doing before we will uh, bless them, if you will, with our forgiveness. And so in that chapter, I try to go into the idea that I think is biblically solid, which is forgiveness is commanded. Uh, God says forgive. And so we are not to wait on forgiving somebody. We are not to uh, make them jump through certain hoops before we forgive. Um, and uh, I think that's a hard thing for people to, to do, especially when the other person isn't sorry and they haven't stopped. So I try to distinguish between forgiving somebody and what it takes to reconcile with them, which is another chapter of the book. But And, of course, ironically, as we talk about that in perspective of our relationship with God, you know, it, it, certainly he wants there to be reconciliation. God wants to be reconciled unto his creation, wants to walk in fellowship and relationship with his creation. But we also have to recognize that on God's terms, it requires repentance. Yes, and that's uh, a distinction that a lot of people also uh, are a little bit slow to get to. Uh, I try to use the uh, prodigal son story to drive home the issue of forgiveness versus reconciliation. And so in that story, as far as I can tell, the forgiveness had already been granted, if you will, by the father to his son before he returned from the foreign land. So forgiveness was already achieved, but the reconciliation couldn't take place until the son came out of the foreign land. So with my couples, I push them pretty hard on, hey, guys, you're kidding yourself if you think you guys can reconcile if neither of you are repentant of what you've been doing wrong that's been hurtful to the other person. The new book is called The Lies Couples Believe, How Living the Truth Transforms Your Marriage. And the book, by the way, is newly published by David C. Cook and available at bookstores throughout the Bay Area, as well as the usual suspects, Amazon.com, and also through Dr. Thurman's website, Dr. Chris Thurman, Dr. Just Abbreviated DR, Dr. Chris Thurman.com. Well, that's going to do it for this edition of Lifeline. Thanks so much for being with us. And if there was anything you heard on today's show that you'd like to hear again or share with a friend, grab a copy of the Lifeline podcast. Simply log on to kfax.com. That's kfax.com for the Lifeline podcast. Our producer is Wanda Sanchez. I'm Craig Roberts. Till next time around, remember, just don't keep the faith. Get out there and share it and make it a great evening. So long. Opinions expressed in the preceding program do not necessarily represent the views of the ownership, staff, or management of KFAX. Copyright Salem Communications, all rights reserved.
three-star general, Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.